Brilliant. Well, it's great to be continuing our series, um, which is represented by this skydiving picture here, which I, yeah, I always find myself wondering questions about that. Don't, don't get distracted by the picture, um, or we'll have to take it off the screen. But the series is on Join the Adventure, and it, it's an invitation to think about what does it mean to join in with the adventure of being part of Jesus and his people um, here on earth. So we're looking at some of the basic tenets of Christian faith and also some of the questions that people ask when they're new to the faith. And um, today we're going to be looking at the question that's often called assurance. So insurance is a statement that's designed to encourage or perhaps to, uh, to inspire confidence. I don't know if you have any moments when you've needed a word of assurance. There's, uh, there's something of a legend in, uh, in Caroline's family um, because... They like to go on the lake dist- uh, to the on holiday to the Lake District, and um, they they used to go there all the time actually. And Caroline's dad is one of these people for whom the footpath is less of a guide and more of a launch pad. And um, he, he sort of he's particularly drawn to anything which you're not really supposed to do. And there was one particular incident which uh, it started with a sort of a, a scramble through a gap in a wall, and then over a couple of gates with no trespassing on them. And finally, at a, at a point when Caroline was gradually sliding down a very steep, slippery scree slope, she called out, I'm going to die! And it was at that point that uh, I think your dad decided he, he really needed to, to step in and, and get you down there. And you did make it down, didn't you? So there we go. It, it was okay in the end. But that, that bit of assurance needed in that moment. And actually, it is at times when we think about life and death being more serious here that this kind of question comes up. Um, I remember being with a relative of mine when my grandfather died, and um, she's not somebody who'd expressed any interest in faith before, but when we were driving to the funeral parlor, she said, tell me he's in a better place. Actually, I, I, I knew he was. He, he trusted in Jesus, which is fantastic, but it's interesting how life and death situations get us asking questions like, am I a Christian? Am I saved? Um, you know, where am I going? Can I be sure of that? And that's the kind of question we're looking at today. So in particular, we have this, this sort of presenting question, how do I know that I'm a Christian? And just before we... Um, oh, sorry, I had a nice picture of Buttermere for you just to get, a, get us thinking. There we go. That, that, those slopes there, slippering gradually down those slopes there. There we go. Um, it's this question of how can I be sure I'm a Christian? This symbol here was one of the earliest symbols of the church. It's the, um, the chi and the rho, which in Greek is the first two letters of the word Christ. And uh, the word Christian can mean an awful lot of things these days, can't it? We, we still sometimes hear people talking about us being a Christian country. Well, I think that's probably a, a misnomer these days. But then it can also be used to mean, you know, oh, I was brought up going to the C of E church at Christmas and Easter. Or it can be something that's very deeply personal to us. So rather than really answer the question of, am I a Christian, which can be interpreted so many different ways, I want to split it apart into two different things, um, two different other questions that we can ask. One of which is, am I saved? And I'll explain that in a second. And the other one is, am I a disciple? And disciple was actually the word that most of the early believers used when they were talking about each other. Either disciple or believer are the words that you find most commonly in the book of Acts rather than Christian. The word Christian appears first in Antioch when people are starting to realize this is not just another fringe sect of Judaism, but this actually has its own sort of life and identity, but it was probably used pejoratively at least to start with, these little Christs. So 
we're going to start off looking at one of the first instances in which people in the New Testament ask, can I be saved or how can I be saved? And we're going to look at what that saving means. And this is Pentecost and Peter preaching to the crowds. If you've got your Bibles with you, could you turn to Acts 2? We're going to read a good chunk of Acts 2. So the disciples, you'll remember, they've been um, told to wait in Jerusalem until God sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus has gone back into heaven, and they're meeting daily, and they're praying together. And Acts 2 tells us, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did amongst you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But Jesus, sorry, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter goes on, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, 
that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out now what you see and hear. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a long speech by Peter. He's explaining to people who know the scriptures. So he's going to dig into the scriptures that they already know and love. And he talks about it for some length, and it's good stuff. But do you know what really cuts them to the heart is when he comes to the point where he says, this Jesus who you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Messiah. And this gets them because they realize they've just killed their Messiah. These people, they know, because they're Jewish, they know already there is one God. And they know that he's coming to judge the world. In fact, the Messiah was seen as the divine instrument of judgment. This, this king was going to come and put everything right, deal with the enemies of God, bring in the kingdom of God in which everything would be put straight. And they've just killed him. And they suddenly realize we're on the wrong side of God's judgment. We thought we were on the right side, but we're on the wrong side. And that's why they call out, what do I need to do? What do we need to do? It's an experience that many of us have had, I think, realizing suddenly that actually, you know, we, we might have thought we were, we were okay. No, we're, we've made mistakes. We've done wrong things. We're on the wrong side of the judgment of God. And we need to be saved from it. And that is where we get this phrase of being saved. It is about our status before God and his throne. It's our status when it comes to the day of judgment. And he must really have wanted them to have it because he really makes it pretty easy. If you think about mistakes that the Israelites made before, when they rejected God's plan to go into the promised land, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. When they continued to disobey God in the promised land, he sent them into exile in Babylon. And here they say, look, we've just realized we've crucified the Messiah. And, Jesus, and so Peter says to them, believe and be baptized for repentance of sin. He's made it really, really easy for them. He's given them a really simple way to do this. It's like he wants them to do it, isn't it? In fact, elsewhere, Paul says, it's like God standing there with his hands out saying, come on, take it, take it. He says, God's held out his hands all day long to a stubborn people. God wants us to be saved, and he has made it remarkably easy to do so. I had a friend who was a medical student when I was a student here, and uh, she went and did a, a placement in sub-Saharan Africa. It might even have been South Africa, I think about, if I think about it. And um, she worked in an HIV clinic there, um, and she came back absolutely distraught about one thing. And obviously, the whole situation is traumatic. A lot of these people coming through with very little hope. But she said the worst thing was that the government was making these antiretroviral drugs available for free, and they were publicizing it. They were saying, come along, get tested, get your free antiretrovirals. We, we want you to get better. And a lot of people didn't come because they thought that the government was trying to poison them and get rid of them. 
And so they didn't trust the injections and the tests, and they wouldn't come and receive the treatment that would have saved their lives. And here were these people dying from this horrible disease when there was a free offer if they'd only take it. And what they needed was to trust, and I'm not saying there wasn't perhaps reason to distrust sometimes, but they needed to trust the government enough to take what was freely offered. This is what God is saying here. He's saying, look, there is a free offer of being saved from God's judgment. Will you take it? All you have to do is trust me enough to take hold of it. As the apostles explain this in different ways throughout the Bible, it comes out in slightly different forms. Um, But some of them are, in Romans, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's that sense that we have to trust that Jesus is able to do this. Trusting that he's Lord is part of it. Trusting that he died and raised from life shows that we believe that he has power. So part of that is about confessing with our mouths. Part of it is about realizing Jesus is powerful enough. Here in Acts, we have repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's partly about understanding that we need it in the first place. But these are all expressions of trust in Jesus. We often talk about the sinner's prayer. Who was out on the streets yesterday morning? A few of you. That was fantastic. Was it nine people went out and Nine people prayed through a prayer of salvation on the streets, and it's fantastic. I, I can't remember the, the one off pat now, the one on the script, but we often talk about a sinner's prayer, and a sinner's prayer contains elements like, I know that I've sinned against you, God, and I'm sorry. I trust in Jesus as my savior because his death and resurrection made it possible for me to be forgiven, and I take hold of that. Thank you. And praying through something like that and meaning it in your heart is enough to be saved. But the question might arise, can we be sure? And we'd want to know that, right? It's not enough just to think, well, perhaps. Oh, there we go. You see, this is how the ancient Egyptians saw things. And actually, an awful lot of religions don't have a sense of assurance in them. For an ancient Egyptian, if you died, you went to the underworld... And your heart would be weighed on those scales that you can see in the bottom left there. And uh, it would be weighed against the feather of truth. And if your heart was lighter than the feather of truth, great, off you went to paradise. And if it was heavier, it was thrown on the floor. And this unsavory character down here with the crocodile head would come and eat it. And you'd be annihilated. But you couldn't know. know, Nobody knows walking around, is my heart lighter or heavier than the feather of truth? There, There was no assurance in that way of thinking. Um, about whether or not you could be saved. But you know, many, many, many people labor under that same difficulty today. It's impossible in Islam to know if you can be saved. You can have hope in the mercy of Allah, but you can't know because it's based around whether or not you've done enough. And ultimately around the arbitrary will of Allah is what they teach. Jesus says something different. He says, you can be saved from the judgment of God if you will reach out and take hold of it in faith. And it is that simple, and we can be certain of it. The reason is that when we do that, we become in Christ. Somebody prayed about this earlier. I can't remember who it was. We become in Christ. And when God looks at us, he does not see all the stuff that we've done wrong and all the filth and the rubbish. But he sees Jesus and his goodness and his perfect submission And the great thing about that is that even when we go on and make further mistakes, which we do, 
is that that doesn't sully what Christ has achieved. And so our status remains the same before God. This is the most rock-solid thing. This is the most unshakable hope. Going back to the story of Caroline on that scree slope. You know, she had her dad to help her down that scree slope. And how much did you really trust that he could get you down there? I won't ask you on tape. But do you know what? God... God can get us down any scree slope. God is perfectly capable. He raised Christ from the dead. He can do anything. He is able to save us. This is amazing. We're thinking about questions that people ask, and one of the questions people ask is, okay, well, is it possible to lose that salvation then? I remember getting really, really hung up on this. There are certain passages in the Bible, particularly in the book of Hebrews, which talk about you know, warning against not falling away from your faith. And yet, on the one hand, we've got this God who is totally able to overcome any sin. And on the other hand, you've got warnings against falling away from the faith. And what do we do with those two? Well, I want to suggest to you just a couple of things. One is that there is a state of turning and walking away entirely from Jesus and totally rejecting him. If you like, it's that free gift that you've offered. It's not just sort of being a bit unsure if that's good enough, but it's throwing it on the floor and walking away. And there is that state that we can be in of just totally rejecting any hope that Jesus will save us. I think that is what the Bible says calls into question our salvation. The good news in that is that if we want salvation then we, and, and we've trusted in Jesus, we've got it. You know, it is that state of throwing it on the floor and walking away and saying, I'm having no part in this Jesus that calls that into question. But the second thing I want to say is that a lot of these passages talk about not persisting in sinning. And there is a hardening of our hearts if we go on deliberately sinning. There's a hardening that goes on, which is more likely to lead us into that state of throwing away what God has given us. The sin itself is not what keeps us from trusting in Jesus. But there is a state of heart in which we can harden ourselves and harden ourselves and harden ourselves to the point where we no longer value our salvation and we walk away from it. So anybody who's earnestly trusting in Jesus can be saved, even if they've been unfaithful in the past. And obviously we have Peter who denies three times that he knows Jesus, and yet Jesus reinstates him. There's a really helpful passage, actually, in, um, in the book of 2 Timothy, where Paul just digs into this a bit. And it, it sounds initially contradictory, and I think it makes sense in the framework I've just said. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithful, sorry, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I'll say that again. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. There is the sense in which if we disown God, yes, he'll disown us. But but even though we're faithless, he remains faithful. That offer is still held out all the time, if we will just take it again. Just a quick word as well about the Holy Spirit. Some people say, do I need the Holy Spirit to be saved? Has anyone ever been asked that here? Nobody. Maybe I don't. Oh, one person. Great. Okay, thank you. Otherwise, I would have just had to dump that bit altogether. Thank you, Josh. I've been asked that a couple of times. Do we, do we need this Holy Spirit business to be saved? And I want to say, I think it's the wrong question. Everybody who trusts in Jesus gets the Holy Spirit. 
Peter says it there, you know, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, the whole chapter talks about how we are given the Holy Spirit generously, generously, generously. Um, so everybody, whether you're from, you know, the early church, whether you were born again yesterday, whether you're a Catholic, whether you're an Orthodox believer, whether you're charismatic, whether you're non-charismatic, everybody gets the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of God. The Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God. But I think possibly what people are talking about when they ask that question is, do I need to be baptized in the Spirit? Do I need to be you know, speaking in tongues or do I need to be um, prophesying in order to be saved? And the answer is very clearly no. Absolutely no. But <laughs> why wouldn't you want it is what I'd love to say. And you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to walk in the good of what we've taken hold of, in the good of that faith. The Holy Spirit helps us to then walk it out day by day, turning away from sin, following after Jesus. And you know what? Being baptized in the Spirit is just a whole new giving over of self to the Holy Spirit, and it bears great fruit in us. So I want to be really clear. It's not necessary for salvation because we have the Holy Spirit. He graciously lives in us when we take hold of Jesus by faith. But seek the baptism of the Spirit because he does amazing things in us. The first time I was filled with the Spirit in that way was on the floor of a church in Wimbledon. It was an Elam Pentecostal church. And they like to clear away the chairs after, you know, after speaking for the shortest time possible in honesty because we just wanted to get into the worship. And I remember spending, I guess it must have been about 20 minutes, on the floor, very uncomfortable carpet, which left some rather unsavory marks on my face. But... I just remember being overcome by the sovereignty of God, that, that just everything in the world was under God. And it, it was all I can describe it is that that knowledge went from being up here to just being anchored in my heart. It's still something that bears fruit now. If, I, if I'm finding myself overwhelmed by things, I like to lie down and just remember the sovereignty of God. I feel it like almost like a weight pressing me down. And the sovereignty of God is there and, and he's in control. That was something which has continued to bear fruit in my life ever since. So I just want to encourage you, if you haven't been filled with the Spirit, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a good one. If you haven't been filled with the Spirit, seek it. If, like me, in preparing this, you think it's a long time since I prayed to be refilled and baptized and overcome by the Spirit, then, then do. Okay, I think that's probably enough on am I saved? Although if you've got any more questions about it, really happy to talk afterwards. The other word I want to go into then is this question of am I a disciple? This is the word, remember, that the believers chose for themselves. I'm just going to grab a drink. Sorry, one sec. This is the word the believers chose for themselves when they talked about themselves. They were disciples. And being a disciple is obviously all about a person. You're a disciple of somebody. And Peter, the archetypal disciple, if you like, describes it a bit like this, being a disciple. This is in 1 Peter. Um, Chapter 3, he says this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you do suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is just one little passage on what it's like to be a disciple. But I want to zoom right in on this one phrase. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. If you've got the new NIV, it probably says in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And perhaps revere makes a bit more sense to us. But I like that old wording of set apart. There's something in this where Peter's saying, look, Jesus just belongs in a whole other category from everything else. Uh, You know, I have many... I suppose, demands on my life. I need to obey the laws of gravity. I don't get any choice about that one. But I need to eat, and I need to drink, and I need to sleep. And then, obviously, in a good way, but there are demands of family on my life. And then I have my mortgage to pay. And I have taxes, and I have civic duty to, you know, to obey laws and so on. There are all kinds of demands on our lives all the time. But actually, what this is saying is that Jesus, though, belongs in the separate category. He is Lord And this is what I want to really dig into for Am I a Disciple, is that is Jesus Lord? It was one of the first things that Christians were known for saying in the ancient world was Jesus is Lord. There was this declaration. And some of you will have heard that this in some ways was seen as a revolutionary statement because there was an imperial cult um, in the Roman world. It varied in strength over the years, but um, in which previous Roman emperors and sometimes the existing one as well were seen as divine. And in order to uh, be part of the social order, you had to sacrifice to the emperor and you had to say, Caesar is Lord. In fact, during some of the persecutions, if you refused to sacrifice to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, you would be instantly put to death. So to be a disciple meant being unwilling to go along with that. I cannot say that Caesar is God and that Jesus is God. Now, that wasn't a big deal for Romans. They, they were absolutely fine with the idea that you'd worship Caesar when you were told to do that, and you'd go home and you'd have your own gods at home, and that wasn't a problem for them. But for Christians, disciples of Jesus, this is a problem. So the first thing about being a, a disciple is Jesus is God above all else. Nothing else comes close, nothing else in the same category. Jesus is God and nobody else is. But there's more than that, isn't there? There's, um, we, we read here a number of... Uh, sort of sections about the ways that we should live as a disciple. I actually want to read you a letter from the second century apologetic called the, the Letter to Diognetus. And this is a chap explaining what it's like to be a Christian. He says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching isn't based on reveries inspired by the curiosities of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, manner of life in general, they follow the customs whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. 
Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. <laughs> Thank you for confirming that, Graham. But seriously, I mean, this is touching every possible section of their lives. When they say, I'm a disciple, it's a decision that every part of their lives comes under Jesus' lordship. There's the ethics there. Um, they, they, there was this reference to they, they have children, but they don't expose them. Many of you will know there was a, a horrible practice at the time in that part of the world where if you had unwanted children, you would leave them, abandon them, normally on a rubbish dump outside the city, and they would, they would be left there to die. Obviously, it was totally unpalatable to those who followed Jesus for that to happen. In fact, they actually were known for going out and taking these abandoned children and raising them themselves. It touched their sex lives. I mean, it, it says here they don't share their wives, but to be honest, promiscuity was the least that was going on in the Roman world at the time. There were some really horrific things involving, you know, grown men kidnapping young boys and, and, that being, and corrupting them and that being seen as a, a noble thing. It was some horrible stuff that went on. And when people came under the lordship of Jesus, that part of their life came under the lordship of Jesus as well. If we'd read on the passage in Acts 2, we'd have seen that the believers had everything in common. They sold stuff, everything they had, so that they could provide for the needs of other people, the poor amongst them. It touched their money. We read in this passage here, it touched their citizenship. They wouldn't make use of their rights as citizens, but they would do everything to live as good citizens under the state. And yet, they never saw themselves as fully belonging to where they were because they had a different state that they belonged to, the kingdom of heaven. Every part of their life came under the lordship of Christ. I want to suggest that for us, if we want to be disciples, there's this process we can go through of looking at every part of our life and saying, what does it look like for this part of my life to be Christianized, if you like? What does it look like for this part of my life to be brought under the lordship of Jesus? It's a really good thing to do. What does it look like for my work to be brought under the lordship of Jesus? What does it look like for my home life to be brought under the lordship of Jesus? How I raise my children or how I conduct um, the relationship that I'm in or how I behave when I'm out with my friends, what I use my money for. All of these things, how, can we bring them under the lordship of Jesus? But there's even more. <laughs> you know, because... It isn't just about taking our existing lives and saying, what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of all these different bits? Because for these early disciples, their life was entirely about Jesus. In particular, during the persecutions, if you chose to become a disciple of Jesus, you were basically signing your death warrant, or at least taking a good punt on signing your death warrant. You were saying, nothing else matters as much as this. And my entire life is going to be defined by my following of Jesus. And I want to say this is a step beyond Christianizing every part of our life. This is a step beyond saying, I want to make sure that every part of my life comes under, under the lordship of Jesus. This is almost like a wipe back to nothing and say, what does God want for my life? And how am I going to fit all these other things underneath that? Basically, how can I form my life around the kingdom of God? I hope I'm explaining clearly the distinction between that. I think it can be quite easy for us to make our own plan and our own life and then say, you know, but I want all these bits to be Christian bits. But there's something more of saying, but what if my entire life is about Jesus? 
So I want to finish with a challenge, really. And it's one that I'm speaking to myself. But these early martyrs in the, in the first 300 years of the church, where it was extremely dangerous to, to call yourself a Christian, it was very obvious for them what it meant to make Jesus totally Lord. There was a, you know, a very clear process of just submitting everything that you cared about to the Lordship of Jesus because you knew that everything apart from that could be taken away from you, just like that. And then after 300 years, you get Constantine coming in as emperor and suddenly it's no longer illegal to be a Christian. In fact, it becomes the state religion and there's much, much less by way of persecution. Certainly it's very far from mainstream persecution. And the church kind of looks around and they go, we, we have to redefine what it means to make Jesus Lord because martyrdom just isn't something that's happening anymore. Being willing to give up your life is not something that's very often demanded of us. And so you see people going out into the desert and um, you know, living this ascetic lifestyle. You've probably heard of the Desert Fathers and sometimes founding communities of people where instead of it being about you know, giving up my life to whatever the persecuting power will do, it was I'm going to give up everything that I could value above Christ and just value Christ. And they would give up you know, whether it was marital relations, whether it was nice food, whether it was the wealth that they'd previous had, previously had, whether it was political engagement. They would give up those things because they were trying to redefine what did it look like to make Christ fully Lord of your life and to put everything that you had into his hands. I want to say I think we have a challenge today along these lines. Certainly in this country, there's no persecution that takes our life from us. I'm, I'm not denying that there are, you know, there are difficult conversations and there are sometimes uh, difficulties, particularly if you work in the state sector, which make it harder for you to live fully as a Christian. But there is no persecution that demands our life from us. What does it mean for us to make Christ fully Lord? I want to particularly speak to you guys over here as students because you're making decisions about your lives now that will affect how you live for another 30, 40, 50, 60 years probably. The chances are that the opinions you form now will be ones that stick with you for the rest of your lives. How do you make your life not just Christianized, but all about the lordship of Jesus? But it's not just you guys, it's everybody, it's all of us. We're in an age where the gospel is going to the nations. We're in an age where Christ is being preached and the church is growing faster. I'm going to skip over a few slides because I'm going the wrong way. That's why I've got problems. The church is growing faster than it ever has before. And yet, if you look at this map here, this is from the Joshua Project, all those red areas are almost entirely unreached peoples. These are people that have never heard the gospel, where there's no indigenous church. And the yellow areas is still pretty, pretty scant in many areas. So there's a huge amount across the world to do. And even at home, if we look at the world and that huge amount of unreached, 7.2 un, billion sort of in the world, and the unreached, the 2.4 billion of that, the unengaged, even here on our doorstep, is still 0.25 billion. There are people in Oxford who've never heard the gospel preached to them, not in a way that they can really understand. They might just live up the street from you. And there are people from nations where the gospel is not allowed to go who are coming over here. We have an opportunity to reinvent ourselves and to say, what does it mean for Christ to be fully Lord? What would that look like? if my life was about the lordship of Jesus and the gospel going to people who don't know it and people getting saved.